Let's begin with a word of prayer. We're gonna, I'm going to begin us this morning with Psalm 37, and I'll explain why Psalm 37 in just a few minutes, but let's begin with just a few verses of Psalm 37. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust Him, and He will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for Him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in His way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Oh Lord, several times in this psalm you've said, fret not yourself, fret not. Don't worry, don't stress, don't be anxious. And yet we find that such a difficult challenge in our lives. Today as we come together to study your word, we ask that you would just put a, a hedge of protection, a bubble of peace around us that we, may, that we may truly drink deeply from the well of your word and that we may find peace in this time. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're looking at the top of your outline for today, you, you'll notice that I made a slight change in the title of our topic for today. That's not a typo. That's not a, uh, that, that's not a, um, a mistake. It is very intentional. I changed it from comfort and rest restoration to discomfort and restoration. And why is that? I'll tell you why I changed the name of our study for this week. It's because as I was studying uh, Psalm 40... I got very hung up. I got very tied to and bothered by Psalm 40, verse 1, and by two words in particular. Those two words, as I read verse 41, are these. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. Now, the two words upon which I, I, I wrecked, upon, uh, that really broke me down, this past uh, week as I was studying, were those two words, waited patiently. All of us are used to waiting, right? But how many of us wait patiently? That's not really in my wheelhouse. That's not at the top of my skill set. How many of you all have problems with patience? Anyone? Good, and the rest of you are liars. Um, what? What makes you impatient? Just, just, give me, just give me an idea. What makes you impatient? Wasting time. Wasting time. You know, I love it. All right, so, so Chuck Beatty's just like me. Chuck is the guy who, who in, in seminary, I was always the first one in a seminar to answer the question that the teacher asked, not because I necessarily had the answer, but because I hated that wasted time, that pregnant silence where everybody was sitting there wondering who's going to speak up first. So Chuck, you and I are on the same wavelength. I didn't, so I didn't care if I was wrong. I didn't care if I, you know, if I knew the answer to the question. I was just going to go ahead and answer just to get the ball rolling. Wasted time. What else, what else makes you impatient? What's that? Traffic. Oh, yeah. What else? Waiting in line. Waiting in line. Waiting on the phone. Oh, yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. What's that? Being on hold. Yeah. Yeah. Being in a confined space, like 
Oh, waiting in a confined space. Oh, like out on the tarmac on a plane? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, all those. Waiting, waiting at the baggage claim. Yeah, you and your, you know, your new 400 best friends are sitting there all standing next to that thing waiting, wondering. It was on the same plane that we were on, right? So it, we're here, why isn't it here? Um, you know, I mean, there's all this stuff. I mean, how many of you all remember, you know, either reading in magazines or watching on TV, uh, you, know, uh, you know, advertisements, and there was an order form attached to it, and you could either call a phone number or you could you could send them this order, and it would and and they and they always said please allow four to six weeks for delivery. Do you remember that four to six weeks for delivery? We would never tolerate that now, right? If we don't get it overnight or within like a two day delivery, people go absolutely bananas. We have we've sort of lost our capacity to wait. We've lost our capacity, we've lost our tolerance for waiting. And that's why I think Psalm 40 is a particularly interesting and challenging passage for us. You know, we just entered the season of Lent. And Lent is really about two things. It's about understanding and anticipation. It's about understanding in the sense that it's all about us understanding the real cost and the real depth of our need for God's grace. That's the point of the whole crucifixion, for us to understand just how far from God and how desperate our need was, and therefore explain how important God's grace is and how important the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is. If we do not fully appreciate, or at least, I don't know that we'll ever fully appreciate our sin, but if we don't have a a serious understanding of our sin, then we don't have a serious understanding of grace. If we don't take sin seriously, then we don't take grace seriously. And it's no longer amazing. And so Lent, is, first of all, it's about understanding how badly we need God's grace and forgiveness. But number two, it's also about anticipation. It's about knowing that as much as we need God's grace, it is available for us, but in a sense, we're putting ourselves in a time warp to understand the process of waiting for God's fulfillment. Because as God's people, we constantly live in this world where Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, but still, it's not fully developed yet. It's not fully here. And so we live in that moment between now and not yet. You know, it's, it's, we're, we're, we're still in sort of a waiting posture, a posture of, an, of anticipation. And that's why for these 40 days, we are in this, this not just a waiting period, but an active waiting period, a culturing period, a, a maturing period, a refining period. But it's a, time, a period that takes time so that we really appreciate what comes from anticipation. How many of you all remember the... Uh, the old Heinz ketchup commercial where you know, the, the, you know, the anticipation, it would sing practically the whole anticipation song. The, the, I can't remember who originally did that song, but it would show the ketchup slowly coming out of the bottle. And it was just, it was, that was the most frustrating commercial. You don't remember that one back? You probably switched it because you didn't want to wait for it. Uh, but, it's, but, but it was just that, that, that anticipation idea, but the idea was that if you wait for it, it's going to be so worth it. It's going to be so good. Well, anticipation is a wonderful thing, but it has a dark side. Expectation is a wonderful thing, but it has a dark side. It has a shadow side. And when 
anticipation turns bad, when, when the, the shadow side of expectation reveals itself, we call that impatience. And again, how many of us have a problem with patience? Or how many of us know people with problems with patience? You know, there's this, this gap between what we want, what we expect, and when we want it, which is always when. Now. Right, exactly. Exactly. You know, impatience can get ugly. I saw an example of this several years ago when I was returning from Honduras with a mission team. This was when in my former church, so we were, you know, like every other person in, in the world, we were flying through Atlanta. And because of bad timing and poor planning and, and the weather, we, our, our flight got canceled from, from Atlanta to Augusta, Georgia, which is only about three hours, but it's still long enough to be a problem. And, and, and the, like there was snow and all this kind of stuff. And so we were stuck. We were sentenced to stay in the Atlanta airport overnight. The next flight out was going to be at 6 a.m. And I, I mean, most of us were just like, oh, all right, we're going to make the best of this. We've been on a mission trip. We can make the best of this. But there was this one guy on our flight who just lost his mind. He was so upset. He went up to the ticket counter and he started pounding on the ticket counter and he started saying to the, to the poor ticket agent, he says, this is unacceptable, unacceptable. And he would pound every syllable, unacceptable, over and over again. And it's like in some seminar, he had been taught this technique that would change things. And he, he kept looking at her, he kept saying, you know, is this my problem or your problem? My problem or your problem? Over and over again, just my problem or your problem? My problem or your problem? Thinking that somehow this is going to speed things up. And, and you could see some people starting to just back up from the whole situation and others starting to close in like we're going to take this guy out. Um, but it just kind of, it kept getting more and more belligerent. Unacceptable. My problem or your problem? My problem or your problem? And you know, the, what made it worse for me, and, and I'm not going to get into why this is, but just, let, just accept as, as information right now, stipulate the fact that, that as a little kid and for most of my life, I was a big Pittsburgh Steelers fan, okay? All right, now you may think, why, why on earth would that happen? Well, the point is, this guy was wearing a Pittsburgh, a Pittsburgh Steelers t-shirt. And one of my best friends who was on the mission trip with me was a huge Cowboys fan. And so he was looking at the guy in the Steelers shirt making a scene, and then he was looking at me saying, typical Steelers fan. <laughs> you know, just, just kind of, that's the way you people are. And so, you know, if he'd been wearing like a, like a Jesus fish and Ichthus t-shirt or something, I would have gone up there and just ripped it off of him or like a, 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 a t-shirt from my church. But he just kept going and kept going until finally these TSA agents, you know, the airport security came and they took him away to some secret TSA dungeon <laughs> where I'm hoping they waterboarded him all night. <laughs> Whatever happened, he did not get on the plane with us at 6 a.m. But the point is, all he cared about was getting on that flight. And I don't know, maybe he had some great reason. He didn't, he just, the point was he was being so belligerent and he was being so myopic, so ultra-focused on, on what he wanted that he didn't care about anyone or anything around him because of his impatience. I'm not making any excuse for Delta. My point is that impatience leads us to think about nothing but ourselves and what we want. And you know what's sad about that is my mind kept jumping back and forth from this guy's reaction of impatience to all those people in Honduras that we had been serving the week before who had walked literally 
miles, dozens of miles, over, some of them over 20, 30 miles, and waited hours and hours to, just to be seen by members of our medical team. And how they, they met that challenge with joy and with patience. And I thought, this guy, I mean, he's upset that he's going to, you know, that he's going to miss a meeting in the morning. What's, this, we all need to settle down a little bit. We all have a problem with patience, even as believers. Because every day we live in this tension between the now and the not yet. Time and time again in the Bible, the people of God ask, How long? How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long, O God, until you do something? We want our blessings now. We want our answers now. But what happens when we can't wait? When we can't wait, when we lose our patience, impatience leads to doubt. And doubt usually breaks in one of two directions. It either breaks in desperation, where we take matters into our own hands and try to you know, make, make something happen ourselves, or it leads to despair, essentially giving up on God and saying, well, I guess God either can't do anything or won't do anything. I mean, impatience has some pretty critical consequences. But as we read the psalm today, as we read Psalm 40 today, we've got to remember that David understood the challenges of waiting. He understood patience and impatience. I want you to think about this. How long was David on the run in the wilderness from Saul? How long was he hiding? We don't really know. There's, you know, there's, there's certain other timelines and time spans in the life of David that we have. You know, for example, how long he ruled in, in Israel, how long he ruled in Judah, how long the combined role was, all those sorts of things. We know some of those things, but we really don't have a firm timeline on how long David was on the, ru- was on the run from Saul. Or for that matter, how long was the time between se- uh, 1 Samuel 16 and 2 Samuel 5? What are those two events? The first is when David was anointed by Samuel to be king over all of Israel. And 2 Samuel 5 is when it finally all happened, when he finally was made king of all Israel. There was a lot of water under the bridge between those two things, a lot of dangerous time. And we all know that when we're scared or when things are desperate, it always seems like longer. It may, I mean, have you ever been, how many of you have ever been in a, a car accident or been sliding on black ice or something like that, and everything seemed to move in slow motion? You know, everything starts to seem like it's taking forever, even though you know Time-wise, it's only happening like that. I mean, imagine, that, imagine David, whether it was weeks or months or years, all that time was, was just compounded and slowed down. David knew what it was like to have to wait for the promises of God. He'd been promised that he was going to be king. How long was it before that was actually fulfilled? You know, we, need to, we shouldn't underestimate the raw instincts of fear and survival that kick in in a moment like that. Now, last time, when uh, when I was here with you, we were talking about honor and integrity, about walking with 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 honor and integrity, and we discussed how fear and desperation can lead a person to compromise their honor and to make immoral, unholy, and even fatal decisions. You remember when David had an opportunity to murder Saul 
in a cave while he was relieving himself. Remember, he was on the run from Saul. Saul was with his soldiers, decided to take a pit stop in a cave, and David and his men happened to be hiding in that cave, and David had an opportunity to end the war, to slay Saul, to, to usurp the throne. And all of his men were saying, do it. I mean, the time is right. It's practical. It's convenient. It's, you know, it, it's, it's, it makes sense. All of those things, you got to do it. Do it now. Do it now. Do it now. Go up there. Kill him right now. He's totally vulnerable. And they were right. It was timely. It was a great opportunity. But what was it? It would have been murder, and it was wrong. And David would have killed God's anointed. What does he say? He says, the Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my king, the Lord's anointed. And instead, David arose and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Why? Because he knew that, that you don't do what's easy over what's right. And you don't do something just because it's fast. You don't, cut, you don't take a, a, a shortcut to do the right thing. David had the patience as well as the honor to trust God and, and believe that God was going to fulfill his righteous purposes by righteous means. And so, so, you know, here we have a great example of patience. I think, you know, for all of his other faults, David did have some patience. He had a maturity about him. Even though his men were desperate, David had the patience to do the right thing. But that's something he had to learn the hard way. Have you ever, you know, have you ever asked somebody to pray for patience? You know, people all the time tell me, say, well, Lord, I'm, I'm praying for patience. I, I always tell them, that is a dangerous prayer. Um, and how many, do you all remember the, um, the book, uh, uh, it's called Evan, not book, excuse me, the movie Evan Almighty. Have any of you all ever seen that movie? Great movie about when when uh, God, of course, who was played by Morgan Freeman, as seems to be the, the way it is always now, um, Morgan Freeman is playing God in this movie, and he comes to Steve Carell or Evan, uh, and and or he comes to his wife, and his wife keeps saying, "Well, I just keep praying for patience that, that I'll be patient with my husband." And God, disguised as a waiter, says, "Well, you know, when you pray for patience, God gives you." opportunities to practice. <laughs> you, know, you know, it's like the way you learn patience is God gives you people with whom to be patient. You know, so, so I, like I said, always be, be wary of that prayer. When you pray for justice, be careful but, because you're praying that you get what you deserve. Um, but, you know, David had to learn patience. He learned, he learned patience in the wilderness. He learned it in the court of Saul. He learned it in all these places. He had to wait. I mean, how... I mean, how often do you think sheep just respond immediately to your commands? I mean, sheep, I imagine you have to wait for sheep. They're slow, they're stupid, they just, you know, they wander around doing their own thing. And it takes some patience to be that kind of leader. But David understood that patience, not just patience and happiness, but patience and righteousness are intimately tied together. And that's what, we're, that's what we're talking about today. Before we get into, um, into Psalm 40, I want to talk a little bit about, about what I'm going to call Psalm systems. Psalm systems. Um, just for, take a technical de detour for a second because this is important. Today, as we talk about patience, two important Psalm systems come into play. What do I, what do I mean by Psalm system? A Psalm system is when one or two or three or more Psalms go together. They're connected. 
So in other words, it's, it's, you know, if you really want to get to the heart and soul and meaning of this particular psalm, it's best to read it in the context of the other members of its system. Psalm 40 is part of a system, and so is Psalm 23, one of the most popular, most beloved of the psalms. By, you know, if, I don't know if they ever did a top 10 sort of psalm count. Psalm 23 is part of a system with Psalm 22. And the reason this is important is because Psalm 23 has become and often feels cliche when we treat it just like a hallmark poem. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. Beautiful words just on their own. But you should couple them with its, with its sibling psalm, its sister, its brother psalm, Psalm 22. And if you look at the first words of Psalm 22, what are the first words of Psalm 22? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Suddenly God's provision in Psalm 23 is that much more clear. It is, it is heightened. It's brought to a boiling point. In Psalm 23, David's not, just, David's not just sitting in a field painting with watercolors. We remember that he's on the run. We remember that his life is hard. We remember that he is living in constant danger of assassination, both before he was king and after he was king. You know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And one of my good friends and mentors, Dr. Dan McCall, said that we live every day of our lives somewhere between Psalm 22 and Psalm 23. We live every day of our lives somewhere between, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. So they're part of a system together. And in between those two is that waiting for God to fulfill His promises of protection, of prosperity, of glory, of hope, of fulfillment, of all those things. Let's look at the second psalm system, Psalm 37 through 40. Now, obviously a few more psalms involved here, but remember those words that begin Psalm 37. Fret not because of evildoers. How many times does it say, fret not? And then in verse 7, be still before the Lord and, and wait patiently for Him. Same phrases, I waited patiently upon the Lord. So David is on the one, he's, say, he's saying, We've gotta, we, we can't worry, we can't fret, we've got to wait. And then he testifies, you know what, I did that. I actually waited. And the Lord took care of me. But there's still that in-between time. That in-between time, that time between Psalm 22 and Psalm 23, when we don't know what's happening, when, we, don't, when we, aren't, we aren't sure if we can make it. You know, what if there was no Psalm 23, only Psalm 22? What if we are left with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or for that matter, don't worry. Don't worry. Why not? Worry's practical. Worry keeps me sharp. How do, I know that, you know, how do I know that God's going to fulfill His promise? Later, David says, I waited patiently for the Lord, and He did take care of me. He inclined and heard my cry. But there's that in-between time. And that, I believe, is the purpose of Psalm 40. David's purpose in Psalm 40, I believe, is to train us for patience. To train us in the ways of patience. Um, as we read Psalm 40... You know, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. When he says, I waited patiently for the Lord, that's not, that's not David bragging. That's David testifying to God's faithfulness to hold him through his impatience 
and the hope that we will learn to wait upon the Lord. You know, because David was a man who was trained in the boot camp of experience. As an outlaw, as a king, he learned the restraint of waiting for the right time. And that's so important for us to learn. He's training us to learn to wait. It reminds me of a scene from one of my favorite movies, uh, a movie called Braveheart, by, um, you know, starring Mel Gibson. It came out probably about 20 years ago. How many of you have ever seen this movie? Okay, spoiler alert, it's been out for 25 years. I'm going to tell you how it works. Um, so, but if you want to go see it, it's great. It's about William Wallace, the, um, the uh, outlaw and, and, and rebel Scottish partisan who led his people against, uh, against the English um, back in the Middle Ages. And, of course, he was leading an army of peasant farmers, of, of, of Highlands, uh, Highland and Lowland Scots, uh, against one of the most powerful armies in Europe at that time, um, the, uh, the army of Edward II, I believe, or Edward I, excuse me, Edward I, uh, of England. And this picture shows, you know, shows the heavy cavalry, the, the mounted knights that were, that were part of Edward's army. Um, I, I mean, I, I don't know if, if you have been around cattle or if you've been around horses enough, to, around a large uh, around a large herd, to have heard the sound of a of a of you know herd of of cattle or you know stampeding horses, imagine that you hear that sound, and on top of each one of those animals is a man with you know clad in armor with a weapon, with whose sole intent is to kill you. A terrible, terrifying thing. Um, one of the lines in the movie is that no army has ever withstood a charge of heavy horse, of heavy cavalry, of, ni- of mounted knights before. No infantry has ever done that. And so in the movie, and, and I know that people dispute this historically and everything, but in the movie, uh, in the movie what happens is that William Wallace, i.e. Mel Gibson, has his men cut down saplings and trees and sharpen them and, and, and fashion these, you know, these makeshift pikes, you know, very, very long spear. And the idea is that, that at the appointed moment when the, when the, English, when the English charge, they will, they, you know, they will plant their foot, plant the end of the lance, uh, plant the end of the pike and lift it up and create just a wall, a phalanx of spear points. And of course, the idea is that, that then the, the horses and the riders will run into that and, and impale themselves on, on the pikes. Well, in the movie, it is a very tense moment because you've got, you've got some of the Scotsmen who are terrified and they just want to run, and others who, who are being impatient. They're like, we've got to pull them up now. They're getting too close. We've got to pull, up. We've got to pull them up now. But the point is, William Wallace's strategy is that, is that they have to pull them up at just the right time. They have to plant their spears at just the right time because if they do it too early, the English will see it, break the charge, regroup, and, and find some other way to kill them. The essence, of the, the element of surprise is critical. So, so he has to tell them to wait. But he also says you can't wait too late because then what happens? Then they're just going to run over you and we're all going to be dead anyway. And so the scene, is, the, height, the, the scene is built up where you've got the English charging and the Scots waiting and they've got their, you know, the, their spears are all kind of hidden among them so the English can't see them. And, and Wallace is sitting here saying, hold, hold, hold. Hold, and you know they're just—they're just so ready to pull up the spears, and then finally he gives the order: "He's now!" And they pull up the—they pull up the pikes, and the plan works. 
They, you know, they are able to endure that charge of the English knights. They in, end up taking the battle. But the whole point is, it's all about the timing. It was all about waiting. If they'd gone too early or they waited too late, then they would have been in trouble. And David, as a military commander, understands the importance of timing. The timing has to work. If we are impatient, then we lose that element that gives us the strength of victory. And so he wants to train us how to wait. You know, only a leader who's had to learn how to wait himself can really train us on how to wait. So how does David train us to wait patiently through this psalm? Now, this isn't going to track exactly with your outline because I was doing more of a literary outline on your sheet. But, this, you know, but these are the kind of the highlights and the four points that I want us to understand about how David trains us to wait through this psalm. The first thing... He teaches us to do. Interesting thing. The first point to patience, to training in patience, is to praise God. He says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and set my feet upon the rock, making my footsteps secure. His first act, his first act of patience is praise. Now, what does praise do? Praise, first of all, reminds us that God is in charge. It reminds us first that God is in charge, and then it reminds us what? That God is good. See, that's a big, big combination of things there. If we don't remember that God's in charge, and we don't remember that God's good, then we're going to be less likely to wait. If God's not in charge, then He can't do anything. If He's not good, then He doesn't care. But David is praising Him. I, you know, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. And then he had the power to make a difference. I love the imagery that he uses here. The pit of destruction. You know, the old 70s expression, man, I'm in the pits. I'm depressed. This isn't just like a, a pit, like a, a small hole. This is like a pit like the grave. This is like a pit, like a, a garbage pit where stuff is thrown in there and expected to, to decompose, like a, a compost pit. I love it. The, the idea of having your feet in the miry clay. I don't know how many of you all go to the coast or have ever been, you know, ever, you know, gone out looking for oysters or anything like that. You know, growing up in South Carolina, we did that all the time. And I'm not sure what you call it here. But in South Carolina, when the, when, the, when the tide recedes and there's that water, that, that area that's still wet, we used to call it pluff mud. Do you all know what pluff mud is? Pluff mud is that really silty, soft, clay, clay mixed in mud that when you, when you step on it, it, it doesn't give you any kind of support, but it just kind of sucks you in, but not all the way. And it, you get up about waist deep and you can't get out. I remember once, you know, like I, I, we were at a restaurant in Merle's Inlet, South Carolina, and I just stepped off a dock into the pluff mud. You know, my parents were, you know, they turned their, their heads for like one second, and I stepped in, and I was like, bloop. And my dad had to like reach down, pull me up by the arms. It was like popping a cork of champagne. He was like, Pow! you know, finally I pulled out. I remember another time, I was, uh, we were actually, uh, and this has happened in my, in, in my previous home, we were, uh, I was back in the backyard and I saw our neighbor's son walking across this log uh, over this creek in, behind our house. And he had, you know, and, and he, was, he was just playing. He was taking, you know, taking his BB gun back in the woods. And I was just kind of back there doing some yard work. And all of a sudden I saw him fall off of this log. And I yelled to him, I said, Nick, you okay? Nick, he'd fallen into the creek bed. I said, Nick, you okay? And I ran over there. 
and Nick somehow had fallen off and done the opposite of what a cat does, had flipped over and his head was stuck in the mud. And he couldn't get out. And I had to like pull him out like it felt like post hole diggers or something. I had to pull him out by his feet. And again, you know, kind of when his head came out. That's, that's the kind of thing that David's describing here. You're stuck. You're drowning in this mud. And you can't get out on your own. You're in this pit of deep composition. You're being composted. And that's when God reaches down. How many of us ever have that feeling like we are so deep and stuck that we can't get out? That's what David is saying here. He says, I had given up. I thought I was dead. I thought I was destroyed. But God picked me up and he pulled me out and he's put a new song in my mouth. He's put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. Many will see and hear and put their trust in the Lord. You know, why, why a song? Why not just words? Because we all know that, that music, you know, music when coupled with words penetrates more deeply. When we, you know, when we sing, you know, I believe that the words, the lyrics of a hymn, for example, penetrate just a little bit deeper. It's like, it's like the music is like a boat that carries those words of truth deeper into our hearts. I mean, yes, words are beautiful and music's beautiful, but when you bring them together, there's something powerful that happens. And so David's natural reaction to, to God's salvation is to praise Him. And so, in a sense, David is saying, you know, if, you know, the way to begin patience is to start praising God for the things, for the prayers, for the opportunities, for the occasions when He has been there when he has fulfilled his promises start you know build on that foundation and praise god start with what with that so the first thing is to praise god the second thing that starts is is uh, to trust god you know second he teaches us to trust god very often our impatience is really just a manifest manifestation of our trust not that we just can't wait on God. It's that sometimes we just don't trust God to do it. What does it mean to put ourselves in, you know, in God's care, in God's hands? There's a great old uh, daredevil at the turn of the 21st century, 20th century, excuse me, named the Great Blondine. That was his stage name. It's a story I tell to our, our new members, our new covenant partners. The Great Blondine was uh, he, you know, he, he did his act over Niagara Falls. He was a tightrope walker. And he would stretch a, he stretched a cable across Niagara Falls. And he would go out and he would do his juggling. He would get out there with a bar and he would do all these kinds of tricks and things like that. And then sort of for his grand finale, he would take a wheelbarrow and roll it out halfway across Niagara Falls. Now, how many of you have ever been to Niagara Falls? Anybody? It is powerful. I mean, first thing it hits you, I mean, you see it in pictures, it doesn't do justice. I mean, it's sort of, it is so powerful, it is so loud, there's so much water, there's so much mist, it's like it almost creates its own weather pattern. It is just unbelievably powerful to see how, the, how much water moves across, uh, across these things. And so, you know, so you're standing close on solid ground and you feel a little shaky. Well, here's the great blondine going out onto, the, going out onto this high wire. And he's done his juggling, he's done, his, you know, done all his tricks, and then he says, he says well, now I'm going to take a, a wheelbarrow. He says, but you know, a wheelbarrow's not a big deal. Uh, he has one of his assistants throw in a 50-pound sack of grain. And he takes it out, 
takes it out to the middle, and he brings it out, and the crowd's like, oh, that's pretty cool. Yeah, it says, how many you think I can carry 100 pounds out there? They're like, oh, yeah, sure, why not? So they throw another, he throws another 50-pound sack of grain into the, into the wheelbarrow, and he carries it out to the middle, and he brings it back. He says, well, if I can do 100, I bet I can do a, uh, 150. And the crowd's like, all right, now we're interested. Sure, yeah, take out 150. Well, they takes it. This time, he kind of stumbles a little bit. He goes out, but he brings it back, 150 pound. Uh, 150 pounds of grain, three big sacks of grain. And so he says, well, should I keep going? Maybe I shouldn't keep going. I think I'm pushing it. And the crowd's like, no, no. This time, they've, now they've got bloodlust. And they're like, yeah, no, no, no. We want to see it. Yeah, you can do it. We know you can do it. So he takes out. So his assistant puts in a fourth sack of grain. Now he's got 200 pounds of grain in this wheelbarrow. And he takes it out. He moves it a little bit more slowly. Gets all the way out about halfway. He's at well over the falls. And he comes back. And this, by this time, the crowd is going bananas. They're just, un, they, they're just unhinged. They're like, oh, wow, he can do anything. He says, how many of you all think that I can push 250 pounds out across, the, uh, out across Niagara Falls? And now the crowd is just like, yes, you can do it. You can do anything. We'll give you all the money in our pockets if you carry 150 pounds out, into the, out across Niagara Falls. He says, he says, okay, good, except I don't have a fifth bag of grain. I'm going to need one of you to get in the barrel. Wheelbarrow. Isn't it fascinating how everybody's on his side and believes he can do it until you're asked to get into the barrel? It's one thing to believe in God, to say you trust God, and another thing to trust into God. To trust Him with your life, to trust Him with your decisions, to trust Him not just with the big things, but those little things like patience. Should I wait another hour? Should I wait another month? Should I act on my own or not? Do I really trust God? David says, Blessed is the man who makes the Lord his trust, who does not turn to the proud, including himself, and to those who go astray after a lie. You have multiplied, O Lord my God, your wondrous deeds and your thoughts toward us. None can compare with you. I will proclaim and tell of them, and yet, yet they are more than can be told. And it's not just trust in the sense of of do I believe God? It's like I said, it's, it's sincere trust. He goes on to say, in sacrifice and offering, you've not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering, you have not required. You know, he's not talking about a superficial trust. He's not talking a doffing of the hat trust. He's not saying, you know, trust like, oh, I believe God, but I'm going to do my own thing. He's talking about great blondine type of trust. Get into the wheelbarrow type of trust. You know, to, if we're ever really going to be patient, then we have to understand that, that that patience is a function of really trusting God. And I'm not talking about superficial things. I'm not talking about waiting for the, you know, I'm not talking about waiting in the grocery store line or for a parking place. I'm talking about that trust that takes place between, you know, leaving the doctor's office and getting the results back on your cancer scan, cancer screen. You know, do we trust God enough? Do we trust to believe that He can do something and that He loves us enough to care? Do we trust us, ourselves enough to put ourselves in His hand when it's out over the middle of the falls? When He's out over the middle of the falls. That's what He's talking about. The, um, the third thing He teaches us is to petition to God in prayer. Petition to God in prayer. Um, we're supposed to turn it over to God in prayer. He says, 
As for you, O Lord, look at the tone, look at the grammar of, of this psalm. He switches from telling us what to do to what? To praying. It's kind of like he switched from, from Proverbs to Psalms now. As for you, O Lord, you will not restrain your mercy from me. Your steadfast love and your faithfulness will, even, will ever preserve me. For evils have encompassed me beyond number. My iniquities have overtaken me, and I cannot see. There are more than the hairs on my head. My heart fails me. You know, he turns from telling us how to be patient to praying. How important is prayer? How important is the link between, between prayer and and patience. So often we think of waiting as doing nothing. David's not saying don't do anything. David is saying instead of forcing something, pray. Hear me when I say this. Prayer is not nothing. Prayer is something. And you're not doing nothing if you're praying. A lot of people say, a lot of people would, would, would say, well, you're not doing anything. You've got to take action. I am taking action. I'm praying. You want me to call the police. I'm calling the master of the universe. You want me to, you want me to, to, to harass some poor clerk on the website. I'm petitioning the God of, of the cosmos. Which is going to be more effective? Prayer puts us in God's hands and trust, and also reminds us that, that this relationship is real, that he does care, and that he does have the power to make a difference. Now, David prays for himself, but he also prays for others. He prays not only that God would protect him from his enemies, but he also prays that he would make him a witness for others. Because one of the cool things about this, about being patient, is that when we, when we are patient, we have an opportunity to testify and proclaim God's mercy and faithfulness to others. See, the psalm comes full circle. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined and heard my cry. He lifted me up out of the pit, out of the miry clay. I will sing a new song. I will sing a new song. Many will see and hear and put their trust in the Lord. When we demonstrate patience in God, that not only soothes us, it becomes a witness, a testimony, a proclamation of God's goodness to others. Nobody is going to believe that, we can, that, that they can trust God unless they see us trusting God. Nobody's going, to, nobody's going to listen to me as a pastor if I tell you to pray and you don't know that I pray myself. Now, you're not going to trust me as a pastor when I tell you what, what I believe about the Bible if you see me acting hypocritically, right? Same with all of us. And David is saying, if you want people to, to trust God, then you show them that you trust God. And that's not, again, that's not for nothing. When they see you trusting God, they're going to say, why is, why is she trusting God? She's a rational person. She's a smart person. She's a practical person. Why is she, why is she putting her trust in God? Why is she waiting? Why is she holding? Maybe there's something to this. And that becomes a witness to God's power and to God's truth. And that's so important because we, I mean, all of us, we, other people need to see this confidence in us because they need to borrow that confidence for themselves. 
Uh, you know, one of the concepts that has really just has really been sinking in with me lately, and I wish Jim Carso was here today because he gave me a book about this recently. The, the, the concept that's really been hitting me as, I, as we approach Easter this year, because I've always focused so much on Good Friday and, and Easter Sunday, but there's an ancient custom, an ancient concept that we often skip over, particularly in the Protestant world in our rush to Easter. We skip over the idea of Holy Saturday. What is Holy Saturday? Holy Saturday is the day between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Still not comfortable with the name Good Friday. I mean, it's good for us, bad for Jesus. And bad for the disciples. And we call it Good Friday. What did they call it? What, what were the disciples calling it on the day after? That horrible day when our master was slaughtered. We look at Easter, we look at the crucifixion through what? Through New Testament eyes, through, through Holy Spirit eyes, through Easter eyes. Try to put yourself just for a moment on Holy Saturday. The person you've banked your life on was killed in the most horrible, humiliating way you can imagine. Now what? I mean, I mean sure, he told us that he was going to be that he was going to be put on trial. He told us that he was going to be brought before the scribes and Pharisees. He told us that he was going to be tortured. He told us he was going to be killed. But, but man, I mean, there's no way he was expecting that. I mean, every human instinct is to say it is over. Yeah, we just got Psalm 22. He even, the master even said it from the cross. There's no Psalm 23. And one of my favorite movies, it's the movie Casablanca. Casablanca is a Holy Saturday movie. You know why? Well, we all think about Casablanca as this classic love story, wartime story of courage and romance set against the backdrop of World War II. And we think, oh, it's so wonderful. And we look at it through, through romantic, nostalgic eyes. You know, you know what the most interesting fact about Casablanca is? It was released in 1942. The war was not over. D-Day had not happened. We had barely, you know, we hadn't, I don't even think we had touched down in North Africa yet. It was still under the control of the Nazis and the Italians. When they made Casablanca, it was a fantasy. It was a fever dream. Nobody thought it was a prophecy. Can you imagine going to see that when it first released? And watch, when it was first released, not thinking of it as a, oh, oh, this is so much fun. This is when, when Bogey says that one line, or, or this is when then this happens, or this is, play it again, say, this is when this happened. No. Can you imagine sitting in that theater, that dark theater, when the Nazis walk into the bar and the French are trying to oversing them, and wondering, is this the darkest time in human history? Is, is this war ever going to end? You know, is, the, is Hitler really going to reign for a thousand years? The Third Reich? That's Holy Saturday. And the only thing that makes sense of Holy Saturday, when the cross is empty but the tomb is still full, 
It's when we later see what David has seen, that he lifted me up out of the miry clay. It's when the promise of God is fulfilled. You know, the early Christians constantly had to struggle against the criticism of insanity. Why on earth would you give your life to a dead man, a condemned criminal, someone who was not only executed but was shamefully kicked around in the dirt like that? Why would, you, why would you invest your life in somebody like that? And Paul says in, Rome, in, excuse me, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says, you're right. It is absolutely crazy for us to give our lives to Jesus Christ. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, from, uh, raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul makes the argument that if Jesus Christ is not raised from the dead, we are not only pitiful, we're not only pathetic, we are liars. But I love the first word of verse 20 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Do you know what that first word is? Guess. But. but he was raised. Psalm 22 makes sense because of Psalm 23. Psalm 40 makes sense. Excuse me, Psalm 37 makes sense because of Psalm 40. The crucifixion makes sense because of the resurrection. And Good Friday does not kill us because of Easter Sunday. But we still live on Holy Saturday. I mean, yes, historically speaking, we know, we know as the, in the words of the old African-American preacher, that Friday, you know, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. But don't we live in Holy Saturday? What do you do on Holy Saturday? David is saying, be patient. Be patient. I have seen with my own eyes how the Lord restored me. Jesus said, I know that it's going to be scary. That's why I'm telling you this ahead of time. I'm telling you, I'm going to be crucified. I'm going to be put on trial. I'm going to be tortured. But on the third day, I will rise again. I'm telling you this now, he says. I'm telling you this ahead of time so you won't think this is an accident. But still, even though we've been promised, we have to wait for the fulfillment of that promise. What are we going to do on Holy Saturday? You know, one of the, one of the counter options is to take matters into our own hands. You know, last uh, couple years ago, we were studying Abraham and Sarah. Abraham and Sarah had been promised a child of their own from whom God would create a great nation. But after, you know, after 15 years or so, no child. You know, they weren't getting any younger. And so what did they do? They decided to take matters into their own hands. And what happened? They decided to, to use Hagar, the Egyptian, as a substitute, as a surrogate for the fulfillment of God's promises. And it threw them out of whack for another 15 years. Created all kinds of problems because they didn't wait on God. They didn't wait patiently for God. You know, it's fascinating you know, that, that, that so often anticipation, expectation, turns 
into impatience because we start to want the blessing. We want, start to want the promise. We start to want the gift more than we want the giver. When we start to focus on the promise more than we focus on the promise maker, that's when anticipation crosses over into impatience. And that's what messes us up. David is saying, keep your eyes on the Lord. Trust Him. Forget about the blessing. Forget about the gift. Stop obsessing over the child. Stop obsessing over over your salvation. And focus on Him. Keep your eyes on Him. And He will fulfill the desires of your heart. Notice in, notice in, uh, in Psalm 37, He doesn't say, do this, 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 and this, and he will fulfill the desires of your heart. He says, keep your eyes focused on him, and he will desire, fulfill the desires of your heart. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, says Jesus, and all that other stuff that you're worried about, all the stuff that's making you impatient, then it will be added unto you. And here's the truth. When we pray, we want God's yes immediately don't we? We want what we want, and we want it now. But sometimes God says no. Sometimes God says no. And I'm absolutely convinced when God says no, when we pray and God says no, it's because he has something better in mind for us. It's not just because he wants to say no, I don't want to give you something nice. It's because he has something better in mind for us. The problem is when we get impatient, when we get impatient, we drown out God's no. We want our yes so much that we drown out God's no and we short-circuit the best of what God has for us. We take a shortcut thinking we can get God's promises, God's blessings on our timeline instead of His. We rely on our power rather than His. David is saying, wait. Be patient. Cultivate that. If you're starting to feel impatient, praise God. It may seem like the most counterintuitive thing in the world, but start thanking God for the things He has done in your life. If you're starting to feel impatient, then, um, then the next thing you do is, oh gosh, I lost my, lost my time on here. Uh, first, uh, then trust God. Remember that He is the God not only who can make a difference in your life, but also loves you enough to make a difference in your life. Third thing, Pray. You know, praying in a time of waiting is not doing nothing. Praying is doing the best thing you can do. And then finally, tell people how God comes to you in your patience. Or comes to you in that time of waiting, whether you feel patient or not. I believe that, you know, of all the, <laughs> of all the deadly sins that we need to get a handle on, impatience is probably the greatest. Impatience is tied to pride, it is, in t- it is tied to, uh, to lack of trust, it's tied to greed, all of those things. And if we can get a handle on that, if we can, if we can redirect our impatience from our desire for the gift to our relationship with the giver, we will find our lives changed. Because He loves us. He doesn't want us to stew. He doesn't want us to fret. He wants to give us the best of what he's got for us. But he knows the best time and the best way to deliver that. So, 
wait patiently on the Lord. That's my homework for next week. I'll even give you two weeks to do, get, that, get that perfect. Let's pray. Lord, we want what we want, and we want it now. Whether that is something we desire, or whether it's something that we fear, whether it's something to which we are attracted to satisfy our appetites, or whether it is some kind of comfort or security and, and trouble, whether we want it for ourselves or we want it for somebody else, Lord, for our loved ones, whether we're praying for healing of an ailment or praying for healing of those we love, Lord, we what we want, we want it now, and we demand it now, and if we can't get it from you now, we'll just go get it on our own. Lord, that's our confession. Help us to be patient. Help us especially to be patient in the trivia, O oh Lord. Be patient with people in, other, in the parking places that we feel like we're entitled to. Patient with people who cut us off in traffic. Patient with people who seems to take forever to bring us our food at restaurants. Patience with people on the phone. Whatever it is, Lord, make us patient. Make us godly. Lord, make us patient in the big things. Help us to have patience not to seize control from you. Lord, help us to wait upon you so that we don't act in haste and therefore have to repent in leisure. Help us, Lord, to, to truly trust you and put our lives into your hands. We pray all these things in your son's precious name. Amen.